A campaign launched by a coalition of environmental justice advocates is hoping to end the long-standing pollution burden on New York City's frontline communities caused by 19 aging peaker plants that dot the landscape of the South Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, and other neighborhoods. The plan calls for replacing the city's fleet of peaker plants with renewable energy and battery storage by 2030. Can it really be done? Let's find out. Hi, my name is Alana Knopp, senior reporter with New Project Media. I'm joined today by Seth Mullendore, Vice President and Project Director for the Clean Energy Group. Seth works with policymakers, project developers, and community and environmental justice groups to advance clean energy policies and projects, with a focus on achieving greater access to solar and battery storage technologies for disadvantaged communities. Seth, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Alana. It's, it's great to be here. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you again. And I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about the Clean Energy Group, as well as the genesis of the effort to shut down New York City's fossil-fueled peaker plants. Sure. So Clean Energy Group, we're a national nonprofit organization based in Vermont, although our staff is increasingly dispersed across the country. And we've been around for over 20 years now uh, in, in the clean energy space around innovation and uh, really have shifted our, our focus towards energy access and equitable energy uh, to, to ensure a more just energy transition of the last oh, eight or so years. Um, where we've really gotten into uh, equitable access for, for distributed technologies, in, in particular solar and, and battery storage. So this work on, on peaker plants was largely an outgrowth out of uh, another project called the Resilient Power Project, which focused on solar and battery storage. Uh, we kind of became experts in, in the battery storage space through, through that project and, and other work we were doing. And um, we were following the industry and developments. And we, about three or four years ago, kept seeing stories about the, the ability of, of batteries to increasingly compete economically with uh, peaking power plants, so peaker plants. So for folks that don't know peakers that, that well, peakers are, are usually natural gas, Fired power plants it could be oil fired, even some coal plants, major coal plants are used as peakers. And they, they don't operate most of the time. They have what are called low capacity factors. They only operate you know, 15% of the time or, or less that they could be operating. And they're only called on when energy demand is, is, is super high or there's something else happening on the grid where you need power right away uh, to respond to, to the energy demand needs. And it tends to cost a lot. They tend to be pretty inefficient to run. So this was, uh, they tend to operate only over a short period of time. So this made them a, a perfect uh, market niche for batteries to become able to compete as the lithium ion battery prices dropped in prices. So about three years ago, we, uh, we worked on a multi-state effort to, to look at opportunities for, for batteries to replace peaker plants. So it was across eight different states. One of those was New York. And uh, through that work, we, we brought together a, uh, a meeting where we brought in folks from industry, from, from larger nonprofit uh, environmental groups, and from community-based organizations that were concerned about peaker plants and, and looking to learn more and, and had similar goals of, of replacement. Some of the groups that were represented there were out in New York City. So New York City Environmental Justice Alliance was there and uh, the folks from, from the point were there as well, which is Hunts Point in, in New York City. And through that work, we, we decided in New York City, got 19 peakers, as you mentioned, um, so very overburned with peaker plants. 
has some of the most expensive capacity markets in the, the country, super constrained area, which is why it's difficult to get energy into the city out from outside of the city when demand is really high. So we created this coalition, the, the Peak Coalition. Um, so that's a clean energy group with uh, New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, Uprose, uh, which is Sunset Park in, in New York City, The Point, Hunts Point, and uh, New York Lawyers for Public Interest. So between clean energy groups, EEG's technical side, and the community-based focus of NIJA, the, the Environmental Justice Alliance, Uprose and The Point, and then the legal expertise of New York Lawyers for Public Interest, we had a really great team together to try to put in uh, a case and an advocacy campaign to try to stop these power plants. Um, another thing too, uh, we saw that a lot of groups weren't focused on peakers. The peakers are not the biggest greenhouse gas emitters, but what they do emit are, are harmful local emissions, particularly uh, nitrous oxides, um, which, which come along with a lot, of, uh, a lot of negative health impacts. So this was, for us, less a greenhouse gas uh, effort and more an environmental justice and public health effort to try to help impact the communities and overburden uh, environmental justice communities. Sure, and thanks for providing that backdrop and that context. That's really helpful. I know that the Peak Coalition recently released a comprehensive roadmap, and that represents the first detailed plan that sets forth specific strategies and policies to retire and re replace a city's entire fleet of fossil fuel peaker plants. Can you offer a general overview of this groundbreaking report? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so this came out uh, just earlier this year. It's really a follow-on to our report from last year that was uh, called Dirty Energy, Big Money. That report kind of first hit the stage. It, the analysis on there showed that the New York City peaker plants were getting four and a half billion dollars over a 10 year period just for sitting there for through capacity payments. And that um, the emissions from those were, were really causing a lot of public health impacts on surrounding communities. So that kind of set the stage for why are we doing this? And the, the recent report was the, the fossil fuel end game, uh, a frontline vision to replace New York City's peaker plants by 2030. That is our strategy of how to actually achieve the replacement. Uh, so we engaged uh, Peak Coalition, we engaged a, a consultant called Stratagen. Um, they're really experts in, in the battery storage space in particular, which is, is key to the replacement strategy, having flexible kind of on-demand resources. And so what this report did was it looked at the historic uh, generation, the historic uh, usage of, of peaker plants in New York City and matched on an hour-by-hour -hour basis the mix of uh, renewables, so that's offshore wind, solar, uh, along with battery storage and energy efficiency that could meet that same demand needs, not just in a one-year slice, but looking ahead as you saw growth from things like electrification and, and the changes to the power system in New York City, what would meet those two needs over time? Um, specifically looked at 2025 and, and 2030, what resource mixes we would need. Additionally, it also looked more at some of the impacts um, and, and the folks that were that are affected in New York City by these power plants. So I want to go back, take kind of take a step back um, in history to when these polluting peaker plants first came online and ended up predominantly in communities of color. How and why did this happen? 
Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's complicated. Um, and I, you know, I don't have the ultimate answer to that. But you know, history, some of these speakers go back a long time. The, the oldest speaker plant in New York City it was built in, in 1954. Uh, that's a long wow. time ago. Uh, you know, a lot of them are, are 40 to 50 years old. So you know, how, how did these end up being in underserved communities? So Low-income communities, communities of color, you know, all, the same reason a lot of these things end up there. Uh, a long history of, of systemic racism, um, you know, redlining practices that a lot of folks are familiar with, basically marginalized communities to um, some of the, the, the least uh, economically developable areas. And at the same time, uh, you know, reduce the amount of investment in communities and for creative practices where it was easier to cite uh, polluting infrastructure, industrial facilities, power plants in these communities. So, you know, some people argue, well, it's lower prices because uh, these power plants are there and that might be why uh, more marginalized communities are located near them, others that there's not the political power to have bought them. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that much why they're there, the history of why they're there. It does, but the fact is they're there and that's what we're dealing with right now. Um, uh, the thing to, to us realize is, is these older plants that were built, you know, 60s and 70s and older, they don't have modern uh, air emissions technologies. So the pollutants from these are really bad. And they, they're, they're built small enough that they avoided uh, some of the uh, emissions um, regulations that are out there for larger power plants. So they kind of slipped in under the radar. Now, I do know more of the history of uh, the more recent power plants. There's, there's six that are owned by the, the New York Power Authority, um, the public utility that's serving New York City. Those were built in 2000, 2001. Um, and those power plants actually avoided a full environmental review process. Basically, that was around the same time uh, that California was experiencing blackouts due to what we later learned was Enron manipulating the markets. And... Uh, folks were scared that it was going to happen in New York City as well. So they kind of used that to, to push through power plants that, that were limited in, in the amount that they would be generating to get away from uh, a lengthy review process. Under the, there's an Article 10 process in New York City for siting of, of infrastructure. So they said they weren't going to emit more than that, although they have emitted more than that over time. And they also shortened public comment periods um, for air permits. Um, which, which created less opportunity for, for public opposition to them. So they circumvented the process. And a number of members of, of PEAK at the time opposed those power plants. Were not successful. Uh, they were, the power plants were actually meant to be temporary, but here we are you know, 20 years later and, and they're still operating. Yeah, exactly, which makes this initiative so critical. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the health and environmental impacts caused by these plants in these frontline communities. Yeah, so you know, one of the things that was part of the analysis was, was looking at some of the numbers impact. determined that 750,000 people in New York City live within one mile of a beaker plant. You know, it's hard to tell exactly where emissions are going, but if you're within one mile of them, you're probably going to be impacted one way or another. And there are you know, broader impacts than that. Now, 78% of those 750,000 people are either low income or people of color. Uh, many are both low income and people of color. Uh, 
So that's a huge impact right there, uh, disproportionate impact on, on low-income communities of color. As far as the, the health impacts, you know, the, the biggest worry is, is nitrogen oxides, NOx. Um, there's also sulfur dioxide. Um, both of these are directly harmful and can, can cause a secondary formation of ozone and particulate matter, which have serious health impacts. Uh, they have emit higher pollutants uh, levels than, than uh, typical more baseload power plants that operate more often, particularly when ramping up and down. So starting and stopping, uh, they can cause a lot more emissions. And, you know, as I said, a lot of these don't have modern emissions control technology. So they're quite a bit bad, uh, worse on, on emissions than other power plants. Um, the New York State Energy Resource uh, Development Agency uh, they found that the peaker plants can, can account for a third of New York's daily power plant NOx emissions, even though they're a very small percentage of the actual energy percentage. Um, and even so the worst can be on high ozone days, which, which some have found that uh, peakers can contribute upwards of 90% of the NOx emissions from the electric sector during those times. And that's when, when, uh, when high temperatures usually uh, a, uh, forming higher levels of, of ozone. As far as the uh, the, the actual numbers of, of what these impacts are, it's been estimated that uh, that exposure to ozone has caused 400 premature deaths, uh, over 800 hospitalizations each year, and over 4,000 emergency department visits for asthma. Uh, particulates are even worse, 3,000 annual deaths and 6,000 emergency department visits. Um, and the high poverty neighborhoods, the, the Department of, of Health and Mental Hygiene in, in, in New York City, found that they're disproportionately impacted by these. 55% of hospital admission during uh, uh, ozone days uh, for, for asthma-related conditions are from, from these high poverty neighborhoods, and particularly among children. Uh, they have higher rates of burdens. Um, they could have four times the, the asthma hospitalization admissions rates as, as other higher wealth neighborhoods. Um, and of course, uh, talking about recent, well, not that recent, but over the past year or so, the impacts of, of COVID-19. Uh, there have been multiple studies that have linked both NOx and particulate emissions to higher levels of infection and mortality uh, from COVID-19. So we're seeing that playing out in New York City in these communities, which, which do have higher impact rates from COVID-19. So retiring the, the peaker plants, that would eliminate uh, almost 2,000 tons of NOx each year, uh, which would be, be a big impact and, and a big uh, public health improvement. Yeah, wow. Those, those stats are really dramatic and disturbing, um, which yeah, absolutely makes this initiative that much more of an imperative. So going back to the roadmap, um, about 3.2 gigawatts, so that's approximately half of the city's existing peaker plants. The roadmap says it can be replaced with a combination of offshore wind, rooftop solar, energy efficiency measures, and battery storage by 2025. It also lays out a plan that by 2030, all the remaining peaker plants in the city, which is approximately 2.9 gigawatts, can be replaced using a similar combination of these resources. I'm wondering how this actually can get done on the ground. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And, and that's really the question we were looking to answer with the, uh, the fossil fuel end game report. Uh, trying to put together a tactically feasible strategy to be able to do that. And I'll start by saying it's not going to be easy. This is a challenge. Uh, New York City comes with a lot of its challenges. Uh, also, the solutions, most of them are not going to happen on the ground. They're going to be on roofs and they're going to be in the water. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk about the combinations that, that the analysis came up with. So there are numbers for 2025 and, and numbers for, for 2030. So the, the 2025 mix, we're going to need uh, 2.8 gigawatts of solar. And that's mostly going to be rooftop solar. The reality is in New York City, there's, there's very little open space available. So rooftops are going to have to be extremely well utilized in order to, to reach the rooftop or the solar installation goals. Um, by 2030, uh, that's going to have to grow double to 5.6 gigawatts in New York City. Uh, for offshore wind, that's the other major renewable energy component. So we're not talking about onshore wind, which is um, feasible for, for upstate regions in New York. But for New York City, we're talking about offshore wind. So by 2025, you're going to need one and a half gigawatts of, of offshore wind. And that's going to have to double in 2030 to three gigawatts of offshore wind, uh, which is a lot considering the U.S. doesn't have any appreciable offshore wind installed yet. But New York City does, New York State has, has big uh, offshore wind goals we'll talk about in a minute. Another major component of this is energy efficiency. So energy efficiency, we talk about in gigawatt hours, big numbers of about 4,100 gigawatt hours of energy efficiency by 2025, and then growing to 5,400 gigawatt hours by 2030. Again, big, big numbers. Um, but in line with projections for, for what New York State is, is looking to achieve, uh, New York City is looking to achieve. But that will need to mean that, that the full plan of, of benchmarking and, and building retrofits that the city is planning will have to be implemented as planned. Um, so uh, there are more ambitious goals that the city has laid out that would go above and beyond this. Uh, so the last major component, which I talked about earlier, and this is really the key to making it work for, for peak power. It says we know solar and wind may or may not be generating when you need it most. So you have to have uh, some form of flexibility. Uh, in this case, we're looking at energy storage. Um, and really, you know, the focus here was trying to look at what, what technologies do we have today that could fill this. It's not exclusive to battery storage, but that is the driving force right now in, in energy storage. By 2030, we may have something else, um, but right now you're mainly talking about lithium ion batteries. So for 2025, it's uh, 2.4 gigawatts of four hour duration energy storage. And that number is gonna grow to 4.2 gigawatts of eight hour duration storage by 2030. Uh, I should also say, you know, those durations, it's the equivalent of that. So. We're not saying we're just going to be installing eight-hour duration storage or four-hour duration storage. There may be you know, one-hour batteries and six-hour batteries and some mix in between. There may be some perfectly viable or demonstration long-duration storage where you're going you know, above the 12-hour storage range. Um, but it's perfectly feasible to think that uh, lithium-ion batteries could meet those eight-hour duration needs. Um, 
if that's still the dominant technology in 2030. So these are the goals that we have to hit. Um, as, that's, that's what we laid out in the, the, the fossil fuel end game. So again, they sound like really, really big numbers, and they are, uh, but it's important to note that these are mainly in line with the goals and targets set out by New York State's Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, the, the CLCPA. So it's a groundbreaking climate uh, legislation that is in place in New York State. So uh, let's see. So we're talking about here 4.6 gigawatts of rooftop solar by 2030. Uh, the CLCPA mandates that there's six gigawatts of rooftop and community solar by 2025. Now that is statewide. So you know, they're talking about a bigger number earlier than we're talking about, but statewide. And so far, investments in New York City, where this needs to be, and because of the, the transmission constraints in New York City, so far, only about 6% of New York State's incentives have gone towards solar development in New York City. So that's got to change. Uh, there's got to be a prioritization of, of those new resources coming in and in, into the city. Uh, for offshore wind, uh, the, to meet these goals, we've got to have, uh, where's my offshore wind number? Three gigawatts of offshore wind. For the state, they've got under the CLCPA a goal of three gig or nine gigawatts of offshore wind, nine gigawatts of offshore wind by 2035. So quite a bit more. We've already got projects that are have been approved and are in the pipeline and are expected to be interconnected into New York City. So that's a process that's already happening. Right? We're almost up to a gigawatt that's already planned to flow into the city, um, directly into some of the places where some of the larger features are, are located. The other thing to think about is, you know, this is our kind of stake in the ground. Say, look, it's technically feasible to do this, the people that are actually working on this, the people that are going to be making these investment decisions, you know, you go out and figure out the ways to get there. This is not the only way to get there, but it's one way to get there within the current constraints. Now, the, the, the landscape is already changing since we did this report and issued the report. You know, just in the past month, last month, uh, a, a major transmission line that uh, Con Edison, the utility serving uh, most of New York City, proposed has been approved. It's an $800 million power line that got approval from regulators. That's going to ease a lot of the uh, transmission constraints. And they, they specifically put in their plan that it would negate the need for multiple peaker plants just by putting it in this one transmission line. So there are multiple ways to get there. Um, that transmission line makes the numbers that we put in lower. Um, so we haven't adjusted the analysis for that. But there's more than one ways to get there. Um, and transmission is certainly another way that we can get there without building quite as many renewable resources within the city. Sure, and it's really encouraging to hear that the city is already you know, moving in the right direction. So that is good news. And I'm wondering what state agent agencies like NISO, NYSERDA, what can they do to help pave the way for this kind of initiative? Yeah, so, you know, it's really gonna take all levels of, of government and, and regulators to, to make this happen. So we did include in the report uh, some recommendations at, at various levels, because um, there are a lot of barriers to making this happen. So uh, the New York Independent System Operator, NISO, uh, they're gonna have to work on creating the right market structure, though, the wholesale market design to, to fairly compensate 
clean resources and in, in particular energy storage, which right now, I mean, what we're talking about is we've got billions of dollars to work with for the capacity market. But the way that things are structured in, in New York, it's very difficult for resources like energy storage to participate and get a piece of that. Um, if we could utilize those funds, if there was a redesign of, of the market so that you could have a reallocation of those assets for, for clean resources, that would go a long way to getting there. And it would start um, creating a market incentive for putting these resources in. Um, we're talking to some folks in, in the industry that are also working on uh, creating some legislation around this that would create a market opportunities for, for peaking resources. Um, as far as uh, NYSERDA, uh, what they need to do is really amplify and accelerate what they have been doing, which is trying to advance clean energy solutions and energy storage and energy efficiency. You know, like I said, we're, we're doing well on offshore wind. That's, that's on track. There needs to be more development there. Solar, the big thing there is we've got to start prioritizing the development where the energy need is. So uh, you know, upstate New York is, is served primarily by net zero resources. They're doing okay. Um, but downstate in New York City, like 90% fossil fuels still. So there needs to be a reprioritization of where incentives are focused um, and where the market opportunities are for development of, of clean energy resources to make sure that they're located where the demand is. In New York, I think New York City represents something like a, a third of the demand for the entire state. So we need to prioritize developments there. And um, you know, as far as getting down to, to you know, state and, and local legislators, there's a lot of barriers still to, to clean resource development in, in New York State and New York City in particular. Uh, New York City, there's a lot of zoning regulations, permitting regulations, and a lot of um, difficulties in, in, in citing renewable resources and interconnection with the utility as well. So there's a lot of barriers and, and roadblocks to getting these projects in place. Uh, you know, as far as energy storage goes, it's still, um, I don't think there's any guidance still for putting a lithium ion battery in a building in New York City. This has largely been due to hesitation by the, the, the New York Fire Department and understandable, this is a very dense urban community, a community city. And uh, they have concerns about uh, safe battery safety. Uh, but there are a number of, of you know, lithium ion technologies that are, are quite safe and not subject to some of the fire concerns that, that other technologies are. So you can place them outdoors, but indoors where most of these are gonna need to go, you still need to get there. Um, and, and overarching over all of this, there needs to be a, an expanded opportunity for more people, more communities, and more stakeholders to get involved in the process. Um, so that solutions are coming, not just from the top down, but they're coming from communities themselves. Two initiatives that I would like to, to hold up as good examples of this. One has been largely spearheaded by one of the Peak Coalition members, Uprose. They have a, the city's first community-owned community solar development called Sunset Park Solar. Uh, it's a great project. It's on a, a public building and it's completely owned by the Sunset Park community. And the, the shares of that community solar are going towards community members. 
that's a wonderful model that needs to be replicated. Another initiative that's been championed by a lot of folks in the environmental justice community has been renewable Rikers. Um, so this is a, a plan to uh, the Rikers Islands. The, the jail is, is being decommissioned, put out of commission, which is great. And uh, ownership is being changed. And there's a proposal to turn that into a clean energy hub. Um, so we've got, I think, 400 acres of land there. There's an opportunity for some solar. The really big opportunity is it's a big open space. We could put a really large battery storage development. Um, likely you could put a peaker plant's worth of storage there. And um, it would be you know, an economic opportunity for communities that have been impacted by the jail for, for many, many years. That's another really great example. So these are just a few of the things that we have in the report. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of work that needs to be done between now and, and 2030 to make it happen, um, but it's not, it's not insurmountable. Yeah, that was great context. Uh, thank you so much for that. That was really interesting. And uh, you're right, projects like Renewable Rikers, which I've covered pretty extensively, um, and the Sunset Park model, I think that those projects are very encouraging um, and hopefully they'll pave the way uh, for, for more of that. I'm wondering if you could touch on, as far as the federal level at agencies like the FERC, what kind of support can they offer to move this initiative forward? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so kind of overarching with that, uh, one thing they could do is stop getting in the way. Uh, they have not been particularly supportive over the past few years. Uh, there's, I won't go too deep into this, but the New York uh, NISO did propose um, some ways to, to incentivize more distributed clean energy investments and more storage uh, within the state. And FERC derailed that. Uh, there's something called fireside mitigation rules that basically says if, you're, if you have incentives that artificially prop up certain resources, they, they say artificially, uh, that it creates an, an unfair opportunity. And so you have to have a floor price. Um, basically that floor price that they have instated make them not economic to compete with traditional fossil fuel resources. They're very difficult to, to, um, to compete. So that process is still being worked out. And the, the new leadership of FERC and the new federal administration, it looks a lot more promising that we're gonna have some traction and we're gonna have some forward movement with, uh, with getting more clean energy resources on, on the grid. So I think that's a process that is gonna get worked out. Timing-wise, I don't know. Uh, you know, Looking back a few years now, um, there's FERC Order 841, um, and that was meant to create a fair market opportunity uh, in the wholesale energy markets for energy storage to compete on a level playing field and, and to recognize the benefits that, that energy storage can provide to the system. But that's still also being worked out. Um, there has been some movement there and some positive movement, but it's, it's still not fully been implemented. Um, so it's still a work in progress. Uh, a little bit more recently, there was a FERC order 2222, and that focused on specifically on distributed resources, so, so smaller scale resources and their opportunity to participate in wholesale energy markets and in, in the ISO markets. 
And that's going to be a big benefit once that gets through, because uh, this will allow for aggregations of smaller systems to be able to provide, uh, you know, grid level, regional level support, uh, which will create a new market opportunity for distributed resources to be able to compete. I actually just saw that um, recently Green Mountain Power here, here in Vermont, where I'm based, they recently bid a bunch of uh, distributed energy storage systems into the, uh, the ISO New England uh, frequency uh, regulation market and successfully bid into there. So that was the first example of a number of aggregated systems participating in, in the frequency regulation market, uh, which is exciting. So it's just another revenue opportunity that can help support these projects and make them more economic and be recognized for the resources that they provide to the energy system instead of just the default of uh, traditional power plants providing these resources. Sure, absolutely. And going back to the state level, I know that the, uh, the, a bill um, recently passed in the New York State Senate that could actually push this initiative to close down the city's plants, the peaker plants over the finish line. Can you touch on this measure? Yeah, I can. So this is out of um, Senator Brisport uh, proposed this legislation and it would establish the, the Pollution Justice Act of, of 2021. And we, members of PEAK have been in contact with uh, Senator Brent Sports staff and have been uh, conferring with them on some of the details of, of the, the Pollution Justice Act. So what this basically does is, is it creates a mechanism where all of the, the peaker plants um, that exist that um, impact environmental justice community, so either are in or adjacent to environmental justice communities, would have to put together a plan uh, five, within five years of being able to completely re replace their, their capacity uh, with clean resources. So renewable resources and battery storage. Um, this would be implemented in, in 2021. And so the, the operators of the power plants, the, the peaker plants would have until 2026 to replace our system with renewables. Now, there is an option as well, um, with the realization that that timeline may be too ambitious for some power plants. So there is an, an optional one-time uh, five-year extension of the deadline. So you could have another five years to um, replace their resources with uh, the peaker resource, the peaker power plant with, with clean resources and storage. Um, they could have a five-year extension. Uh, if they can prove that uh, replacement with renewables and battery storage by the deadline is not feasible, and that the um, that is necessary to maintain system reliability. So, if you took that power plant away, you would have reliability concerns where you might not be able to provide enough power when you need it. So, that's the second metric they'd have to meet. And they would have to uh, provide evidence that the continued operation of the power plant would not result in, in adverse health impacts for environmental justice communities. So it would have to meet all three of those, the way that the, the legislation is currently written, uh, that would have to be the process in order to get that extension. In addition to that, there's a, um, uh, a series of public hearings that the, the plans that the, the power plant operators Put together would be subject to multiple public hearings and uh, there would be uh, availability to participate in those 
uh, hearings through video for folks that had uh, issues being able to attend in person. So there's a lot of opportunity for community involvement as well. Um, if uh, the plans are not implemented or they're not approved um, through the process, then there's also as part of this an exploration of whether or not the, the um, NIPA, the, the New York Power Authority, could take over the transition of these power plants. So take over ownership and put into plan a, uh, a transition strategy for these. So that's an option. It's not a, a thing that will definitely happen, but if the, uh, the plans are not ultimately approved, it gives regulators the option to pull the operating permit for the plant. Sure. Um, yeah, def definitely I'm sure a lot of people are, are keeping an eye on, on, on that effort. And finally, I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, kind of the immediate next steps that Clean Energy Group and your partner advocates uh, will kind of tackle um, to get this going and moving forward. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, on the legislative front, there, there's actually another bill out there that um, key coalition members are involved in. Basically, that, that legislation would uh, make it impossible to, to um, build a new power plant or repower existing power plants with fossil fuels. Um, so it's, it's particularly natural gas. Um, so it would be basically a ban on, on fossil fuels for power plant development. Um, this has immediate impacts for a couple of repowering projects. One's a baseload tank called Danscammer that's outside of New York City, but the other one is, uh, is at the Astoria Generating Station uh, that's owned by NRG. They are also talking about repowering. So if that legislation were to pass, then they would not be able to repower with, with new gas turbines as they're proposing. And so related to that, uh, peak members are involved in a couple of, of repowering opposition. Um, so there's two peaker power plants that are talking about repowering. Uh, they, repowering essentially is just building new turbines to replace the old ones that were there. They have to do this because of more stringent NOx regulations that were put into effect by the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation. So in order to comply with those, the, the existing turbines are too dirty to do that. It's too expensive to put in pollution control technology. So they're, they're talking about building new gas turbines. So the Guanas power plant, uh, is that is in Sunset Park. So Uprose is very deeply involved in um, fighting that power plant. Again, the Energy Astoria power plant, that's not in, in the uh, coalition's neighborhoods, but we're supporting uh, local groups there in, in opposition of that power plant as well. Uh, so that is, is immediate stuff in New York City. The, the main thing though, that we're currently engaged in in New York City is, is uh, it's been over a year, I think over a year ago now, around a year ago, we entered into a, a memorandum of understanding with the New York Power Authority to uh, collaborate together in the exploration of, of retiring their peaker power plants, the six that they have in New York City and, and one on Long Island as well, and replace them with, with clean resources. Um, so NIPA issued an, an RFP, a request for proposals for a consultant to, to do this analysis. And there's a second consultant that acts completely on behalf 
of the peak coalition. So uh, New York Power Authority has engaged their consultant to the analysis. And we're again working with Strategy Consulting as our technical kind of consultant for the process. So that process is kicked off. I can't talk about the inner organs of it very much, um, but there will be a report that's released at the end of that. And the intent is that these power plants will be retired. And, you know, NIPA has committed to, by 2035, to retiring their existing uh, peaker plants. So this is uh, part of the work to, to figure out a strategy for them to get there. So this is a really big development. Uh, they have more peakers in, in New York City than any other owner. Uh, they're not the biggest one and they're not the most polluting ones. Um, but ultimately, because of that, uh, they're some of the more challenging to, to, um, to replace because they are kind of cleaner and, and a little bit more nimble and, and effective than some of the older power plants. Uh, so that's a really exciting development and it's, it's good to be working with, with NIPA on that collectively uh, so we don't have to be in opposition with them. So that's a really big development on our side. Um, beyond New York City, uh, part of, of the work that Peak Coalition is doing is working to, to disseminate the lessons that we've learned and share the strategies that we're developing in New York City to try to replicate this in, in more areas. Uh, Clean Energy Group, we also have a, a separate initiative, well, not really separate from the, the Peak Coalition, but in addition to that, called, called Phase Out Peakers, which is more of a national effort to raise awareness about peaker plants and help support more communities and in opposition efforts against peaker plants. Um, we, there are more than a thousand peaker plants across the US and they tend to be clustered around metropolitan regions. Uh, we, we did one report looking at the top 10 metro regions. And in those regions, there's a combined 80 gigawatts of, of power plant emissions in urban areas. So there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, New York, the kind of New York, Long Island, Newark, New Jersey, that metro area is the worst, most overburdened. But places like Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Detroit, Boston, Dallas, there, there's real big clusters across the U.S. And we're going to try to shed more of the light on those and hopefully be able to start similar efforts like Peak Coalition in new places, taking the lessons we learned from there and applying them to new places. So that's really where we're headed with the work. And, um, you know, it's excited. We're, we're looking to, uh, we're really excited to, to connect with more organizations. Every day we hear from more folks that are concerned about peakers and Another side of the, the, the continued work are, are new challenges um, from not necessarily traditional fossil fuel resources, but things like hydrogen combustion in, in peaker plants as well, which has been held up as a zero carbon alternative. Um, but when you burn hydrogen, there's still NOx emissions that are an issue. So this has become kind of a new front in the fight for us and uh, that Astoria plant their uh, solution for complying with the CLCPA in 2040, when New York State is going to, to net zero emissions, is to switch to 100% hydrogen, which has not been done and still comes with NOx emissions. Uh, so it's not an acceptable solution for, for surrounding communities. Uh, I will say that if you're going to do fuel cells and hydrogen, you do not have that problem. So not 100% against hydrogen here, just don't burn it in, in an urban environment where it's going to pollutant and poison the communities around. Sure, wow, a lot of things to keep an eye on, a lot of moving parts, a lot going on. Um, and, you know, what you said before I thought was really critical. I mean, if this kind of initiative could be replicated 
in other parts of the country, um, that would be a really good thing. Um, this, this is so critical. Uh, so uh, thank you so much, Seth, for laying it out for our listeners. Um, great conversation as always. And I hope you'll come back. Yeah, I would love to. You know, I, this is not the end of the story, that's for sure. It's been a real delight talking to you today, and I, you know, I hope this has been educational for folks. I do encourage people to, to reach out to me if they've got other questions, or if they're fighting the peaker plant in their backyard, uh, we're here to, to try to help. So, you know, I do hope that this is an effort that we can, can reproduce and replicate all across the country, because it's needed, and, and it's certainly time to start replacing these uh, polluting resources with something a lot more clean. Sure, no, absolutely. And thank you so much for the critical work that you and your partners are doing. And I do look forward to continuing uh, this conversation. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. See you next time.